This is the Church Security Made Simple podcast, giving leaders practical solutions to help make your community safer. I'm your host, Simon Osimo, the founder of Kingswood Security and an author on church safety, and I'm on a mission to keep his churches safe. Now, it's been over 10 years since the Lord called me into security ministry, and as a national church safety practitioner, I'll share my expertise, all be joined by one of my co-hosts, giving you simple solutions to keep your church safe. So if you're ready to make your church security simple, join me as we dive into this week's episode and we learn how to plan, prepare, and protect. Now in this fourth and final part of my conversation with Dr. James Densley, we are discussing the means to carry out the attack. But before we start, I want to do a quick recap as to where we have been so far. We've been covering the four things that all mass shooters generally have in common based off the research by the Violence Project who has studied every mass shooting in America since 1966 to the current day in what is believed to be the most comprehensive database study of mass shooters. So number one, mass shooters have suffered severe trauma. Number two, mass shooters have been in crisis or suffered from suicidality either before or during the attack. Number three, mass shooters study the work of other mass shooters. And number four, they have the means to carry out their attack. Now, before we dive into this week's episode, I want to tell you about the sponsor of this series, Bolus Insurance. Bolus Insurance are based here in Minneapolis, Minnesota, but serve churches, non-profits and companies across the country, teaching them how to manage and mitigate risk. And I've known Mark Bolus, the owner, for coming up to a decade, and they are my personal insurers of my business. So if you're looking to make sure you have the right coverage wanting to look at insurance in a new way, you'll find all their details in the show notes below. Let's just dive straight into the fourth and final part of my conversation with Dr. James Densley from The Violence Project. James, we're going to look at the fourth part of your research, which is the means of a mass shooter to carry out their attack. Now, I joked in part three that this is the most controversial and it has to be with us being in the US. One, because there's two Brits now talking about gun control. So anyone talking about history is going to talk about why America came into an existence in the first place in yep. amendment rights. But this must be very challenging. But tell us first, what did your research say about people's access to firearms, the means to carry out these mass shootings? Yeah, it really comes down to kind of opportunity more than anything else. And the presence of firearms are a proximate kind of risk factor in the perpetration of violence. And this is uh, controversial to say such a thing, right? But no guns, no gun violence. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean then you have to ban all the guns. That's not what the implication is of that, because there are many millions law-abiding citizens who use firearms for recreational purposes, they use it for personal safety, handle their firearms, store them safely, not a threat to public safety whatsoever. This is not a bash on the Second Amendment or anything like that. The key component of this is what we saw in the life histories of these mass shooters was the ready access to firearms as being a contributing factor to the violence that followed. And the key implication with this is that these were individuals who had histories of violence, crime, domestic violence, 
They were in an identifiable crisis in their life, and yet they were still able to get a gun. That's the tragedy of this, is that in some cases they were purchasing their firearms during a noticeable crisis in their life, and within days were then using that very same gun to perpetrate a mass shooting. So there's something somewhere that's just not adding up in terms of the existing system that we have to try and provide checks and balances, it wasn't working. And that's really the key takeaway here is there's got to be something more that we can do to prevent these tragedies from happening. Yeah, and I think you've rightly said there is, you know, the appropriate storage of firearms, there is the purchase of firearms, there is the access of firearms by from family members, but there are various different facets to it. And definitely for the listeners, myself and James are not going to end this conversation in 10, 15 minutes. I mean, this is just sort of a, an opening the door to the, to the conversation. But I guess if we tie it into your research then, James, where did it drift towards the known mass shooter since 1966? Were these firearms already owned by people within their families or pre, uh, sort of previously purchased or were these new purchases to carry out the attack? What did your sort of research yeah, it's a great, great question. So we see a few trends here. So among school shooters in particular, who tend to be school children, they're not outsiders, they're insiders. There is this sort of idea in the school safety world, potentially, that you're kind of locking people out. And actually, it's this idea of th these are individuals who are walking through the doors every day. They're, they're the kids, right? They're either former students or current students. But by virtue of their age, they couldn't own firearms, so where they were getting them from is that they were borrowing or stealing them from uh, family members. So about 80% of school shooters are getting their guns because they're not being secured safely at the in the home. So right there, that's something that we can all do. We can all make a pledge right here on the podcast and say, you know, if I own a firearm, I'm going to store it safely. I'm going to make sure that my teenager can't just get it because I've left it lying around in a drawer somewhere. That's That's number one. Number two... There were also examples where people had passed the background checks to at a federally fi a licensed firearms dealer simply because of like weird loopholes that weren't actually capturing these individuals before. So there were cases, for instance, where people had been disciplined in the military, but because the military system is separate from the civilian system, it didn't classify as a felony, even though the crime would have been in the civilian system. And so they were able to purchase a firearm without that coming on their record. There were also cases where people had been subject to certain restrictions on a state level, but they weren't being picked up at the federal level or vice versa, because what you have is that the federal law is the floor, not the ceiling on firearms legislation. So there were a lot of little factors here where it really comes down to closing some of those loopholes so that we can ensure that people who are getting access to firearms really should have access to firearms and they're not just using them for these these purposes. And I know the challenge becomes or where it can get very made controversial and difficult is if you take the, the first thing that you mentioned, which is experienced childhood trauma. Well, that doesn't shouldn't automatically mean someone's sort of disqualified from taking or owning a firearm. And, but the second one you have is reach an identifiable crisis. And again, you know, if someone has mental illness or a breakdown in their past, it shouldn't prevent them from owning a firearm. Correct. 
But these are good warning signs. They're good indicators, whatever you choose to call them, to say that if you have particularly two and then the fourth, that is your that is your flashpoint. So I think it's again, it's these are wider than just saying we're not talking about removing all firearms. We're talking about taking some of these four commonalities you found, joining them together, and saying, well, if you have someone who's in an identifiable crisis, considering suicide or is saying some very harmful things about society in the world and they have access to a firearm, could the worst thing happen? Do I need to remove that firearm from them? And again, using the Charleston mass murderer, that was something that was seen in that case study where one of his friends actually removed his firearm. But I think that person was on federal court bail as well. So he had to then give the gun back because his girlfriend had said to him, well, if you get caught with this gun, you know, what's going to happen happen to you? So there's there's, there's a lot in there, James. There is a lot in there. And and you're absolutely right, though. It's it's the context that matters, right? So you think about some of the steps that are being taken at the moment around what are known as extreme risk protection orders or red flag laws, for instance. So if you've got somebody who's in an identifiable crisis – who shouldn't be in possession of a firearm at that time, not just because they might be a threat to others, but also because they might be a threat to themselves. These extreme risk protection orders were actually intended around suicides. That's an opportunity where you can intervene to remove somebody's firearm temporarily. So you can take it away from them during the time when they're going to get the help that they need. Then once they demonstrate that they're okay again, then they can they can get access to it again. So some of this stuff is not quite as draconian as it's kind of made out. It's it's kind of you know you, well you just want to ban the firearms and stop people from getting access. It's like well no but but let's think about are there some steps that could be taken in terms of a permit to purchase for instance or uh, a wait period on a firearm that could just a wait period is a great example. You know you know when you've ever fired off an email to somebody and. You just take that pause before you hit send, and then you think, oh, is this going to be a good idea or am I going to get in trouble, right? A wait period on a firearms purpose is like counting to 10 before hitting send on the email, right? That counting to 10 could prevent a suicide, a homicide, because if somebody's immediately seeking to use that weapon straight away and there's no gap, this is what we've seen with some of these shootings is that they're purchasing firearms and within the day, are using them, that could have maybe averted a, a crisis. So it's things like that, which uh, we're just trying to think about how do you have a more holistic system in place that could prevent a tragedy from occurring? And it ties into a particular church. I find this when I train on suspicious behavior and then people say, well, Simon, are you asking me to go against my faith? You know, am I judging that person? You know, is it for me to ask questions about their about their life? I can see in the fourth one about the means to carry out their attack. Well, who determines what is normal? Who determines the level of mental illness that reaches that point? So there's, there's, there is, you know, I don't want to go over old ground, James, but there, there is a lot in there, isn't there? There's so much, which is why of all of the four, this could be the most difficult because you're up against amendment rights and then there's the mindset of, well, is it for the state to determine if Simon is fit to own that firearm tool or not? So, yeah. It, it's interesting. It's the one It's the one place, as you mentioned, that's the most controversial and maybe the heaviest lift from a policy standpoint. At the same time, it's also one of the easiest things to address, right? So childhood trauma may require a lifetime of therapy. Given the state of our mental health system, and the barriers there can be really, really challenged to get access and affordability and everything else. Proximity to the weapon 
is it's about opportunity. And that can be a barrier, which could be fixed relatively quickly. It is a bigger conversation. It's a more complicated conversation for those reasons. But it's also one of those areas where we could get a lot of traction very quickly if the right steps are put in place. And I think what we'd most probably ask people to do, I'm reflecting in my own life. I mean, since I've moved here to the US, you know, I have, uh, you know, I do have a, a gun safe and I have amassed, uh, you know, a few firearms and stuff. And I'm thinking, okay, so how, how could I own this as a citizen, as a responsible parent? And there's two people that know the combination to the safe in my house. That's me and my wife, you know, my, my son's most probably never will until they get to their to their 20s. So I think you're right, but the policy lift is huge. But I think if people reflect in their own lives and say, well, what could I do today if I am a sort of a permit holder and I have firearms in my house, what can I do to make sure that I'm being responsible? And I guess if those people do that, if one appears or particularly number two appears, you know, one of my sons would be in an identifiable crisis, which could be um, anything in life where they wouldn't have the fourth, which is the means to carry out the attack, but have to go and find that somewhere else. And then hopefully there's more government controls. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a really good point. I mean, you know, we have this adage, right? It's friends don't let friends drive drunk. So you apply that same sort of principle, you know, friends don't let friends borrow their gun. And I know that sounds a little flippant to say it that way, but exactly as you just articulated it, Simon, which is lawful gun owner, you store your weapons safely in a way that ensures that your children don't, don't get access to them. If grandparents are coming over, what if grandpa just says, like, oh, you know, let him have the gun. Don't worry about it. I know this sounds crazy, but we saw this in our research where people were getting their firearms, children were getting firearms from grandparents because they hadn't safely stored them. That is a very simple fix. You know, if you're a parent, just make sure when they go to grandparents' house that they've also safely stored their firearms. That could prevent a tragedy in these ways. So very simple things that can be done. That doesn't require any change in legislation. That's just uh, you know us taking care of one another. James, going in a slightly different direction now about the gun of choice. So we're definitely hearing in and around, I'll throw out a date, but you can correct me. It seems to be from around 2017, 2018 onwards, there's a lot more of sort of semi-automatic rifles that have been being used. And again, that could be just my perception, but did your research talk about the style of firearm changing during some of these mass attacks? That's actually a really great question as well. Yeah. So the weapon of choice, if you will, for mass shooting, it still tends to be a handgun. And that's true of, of homicide in general in the United States. It trends very, very closely with that to the extent where you're talking 60, 70% of, uh, of gun violence is perpetrated with a handgun. But the thing that was striking in our data was in recent years, there was an increase in the use of sort of the AR-15 style weapons, you know, and, and there's, we could have a whole hour's conversation about whether it's an assault rifle or an assault weapon and people will say people, it's a machine gun. And, I've got to say, yeah. I'm a Brit in America. Someone's going to message me. And oh, say, you, you, you said you, the wrong thing. Yeah, oh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you, you can't win with yeah. this. We actually outline this actually in the book. We give a history of the weapon and we go into the terminology and everything else. If people are interested, we do do our due diligence on that. Those style weapons, we do see an uptick in in recent years to the extent where in general homicide, everyday gun violence that occurs in communities, those types of weapons are in less than 1% of those types of attacks. 
in mass shootings is 25%. They are massively overrepresented in mass shootings. I think this is for two reasons. One, they are sort of part of the script, if you will, of a mass shooting. So when I mentioned before that mass shooters study other mass shooters, one of the things they look at is what weapons have they used? And they copycat. It becomes part of the phenomena that they look scary, they look like a... If, if you want your mass shooting to look like a mass shooting, you've got to perform. And part of the performance is the weapon. So there is this element of it being part of the copycat phenomena. And then, of course, the other thing with those types of weapons is that they are, by design, intended to fire lots of bullets very rapidly. And so people would say, well, that's true of any semi-automatic weapon, by definition. And that's true. You, you can still cause a lot of damage with a handgun. But there's something about these types of weapons, particularly with modified magazines and extended magazines. I mean, we've seen shootings, for instance, with, with a drum barrel that has 100 rounds in it that have been used in a mass shooting. These types of weapons are, are intended to cause mass casualties. And so we see them overrepresented in mass shootings versus everyday gun violence that occurs in communities. And James, what I love about your research is that the, the depth of it cannot be challenged. I mean, we're going to just quickly summarize again for the listeners. You know, the four things that Dr. James Densley and Dr. Gillian Peterson came up with are experienced childhood trauma, reached an identifiable crisis, studied the actions of other shooters, and had the means to carry out the attack. This is every mass shooting since 1966. All we can do as a society and as people is acknowledge that and work out how can we intervene, how can we identify and find people in crisis, and how can we come alongside them to help them to stop these mass uh, shootings occurring. So James, it has been a fascinating journey. It's been great conversation as we've gone through um, these things today. So um, I guess if there's one thing that you always say to someone that we could all do today, what would that be? I would say for me, the, the one thing that still sticks with me is this idea that a simple act of kindness could be enough to get somebody through that moment. And so if we're all a little bit more attuned and looking out for one another, and willing to, to really speak out and intervene when you see somebody struggling, that's the critical intervention point. And so any one of those four things is an intervention point. But I think really what it comes down to across the board is just being vigilant and being caring and compassionate, reaching out when people are struggling. So that for me is the, is the key. I've been talking to James about his book with Dr. Gillian Peterson about how to stop a mass shooting epidemic. The details for the book are going to be in the show notes. I would encourage you to get on Amazon, make a purchase, take a read and um, translate the data. Look at the findings in your own life and work out what can we all do to try and stop these mass shootings occurring. So again, James, once again, thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you, Simon. Really appreciate it. Well, wow, what a series of that was on the extensive research behind mass shooters by the Violence Project. And if you want to check out their book, How to Stop a Mass Shooting Epidemic, I'll post the link so you can go to Amazon and buy a copy today. Now, me and James have been friends for coming up to 10 years, and I'm lucky to have him on my Kingswood consulting team. And although I knew the findings, it's still encouraging to know that there is hope especially for those of us in the church, that we can detect and deter those potential mass shooters by spotting the signs early and showing simple acts of kindness. 
But before you leave me, if you are looking for dynamic online security trainings to grow your knowledge on how to stay safe and secure at your church, please head over to the Worship Security Academy by clicking the link below and you'll find the Library of All Our Church Security Trainings. That is it for now. Thank you for listening and I'll see you in that next episode. Thank you for listening to the Church Security Made Simple podcast. If you are looking for more information and training on how to keep you and your church safe, or if you're interested in working with me on my one-to-one mentoring program, please head over to courses.kingswoodsc.com. And if you've enjoyed the show, don't forget to rate and review wherever you are listening. Now, I will be back with you on the next episode. But until then, stay safe, have a blessed week. And remember, always plan, prepare and protect.